When John O'Brien emigrated to Boston in the 1980s, he found his musical skills in high demand. When playing at gatherings and wakes, he noticed a curious trend. People would mark the occasion by burning a piece of turf. I used to play music in America. You know, you'd be playing at wakes or functions and people would be trying to light sods of turf on barbecues or something and they'd spend all night lighting it and when would eventually light it, smoke the place out of it. Turf peat, cut from Irish boglands, was the traditional fuel of Ireland, used to cook and to heat homes going back centuries. For many Irish emigrants, it was the smell of home. The experience gave John a business idea, turf peat incense. He moved back home to Tipperary and began working on how to bring the nostalgic scent of a turf fire to all those who were far away from home. Myself and my father spent weeks and weeks and weeks developing the product. In the bogs you've got dark peat and you've got light peat, so we have to blend the two together to make sure that it lights. It's absolutely natural, no, no additives of any description, just different blends of peat from a couple of different bogs we use. The Irish peat incense means you can get the smell of peat basically any place in the world once you light one of these. Once they had perfected the blend of peat that would light easily and burn slowly and steadily to produce that turf scent, John and his father developed an incense holder for it, a miniature ceramic cottage. Once the turf peat incense is alight, the smoke rises up out of the cottage chimney. Gayborn launched it down the Late Late Show back in 1996, I think it was, yeah. And he took to it straight away, he loved it. He actually sang Tooraloora. We did a trade show the following day and we were sold out. It was amazing in Dublin, yeah. Then the letters began to arrive. From all over the world, Irish emigrants began to write to the Turf Peat Incense Company to thank them for giving them back the smell of home. We got letters, you know, from people saying, you know, I haven't smelt it since I was 16 years old and I'm now 85. We actually sent it to a leper colony in Kenya, I think it was, um, to a nun over there. We got an amazing letter back from her. We still have it. She hadn't smelt it since she left the mis- for the missions back when she was, you know, a teenager and... She was in her 70s at this stage. It did bring back her childhood, it did, yeah. Just to think that you can do something like that for somebody is amazing, you know. You can buy Turf Peat Incense over at our wonderful sponsors, BiddyMurphy.com, the online store for genuinely Irish goods. Irish shops, shops like Biddy Murphy, are looking for authentic Irish products. This is an authentic product manufactured here in Ireland from beginning to end. Do head on over to our sponsors, BiddyMurphy.com, to find authentic goods made on the island of Ireland. Wonderful, thank you. Hi everybody! Hello! And a very huge welcome to the Irish Passport Podcast, live in Dublin! My name is Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. And of course we are the hosts of the Irish Passport Podcast. If you don't know it, it's a podcast about the history, culture and politics of Ireland, where in every episode we take a look at the backstory to why Ireland is the way it is today. Tonight, our theme is Secret Dublin. We're going to be digging into the lesser-known backstory of the capital. (laughs) (laughs) Are there many dubs here in the house tonight? 
Don't mind him, he's from Galway. Are there any non dubs in the house tonight? Hey! hey yes. Hear that? Oh my God. I wasn't expecting that. Jesus. I have a very special shout out to give to the mm. person who might well be the newest dub in the house, a long term listener who's been with us since 2017, way back when, just moved here to do her PhD. A big shout out to Hannah Millington. How are you? Hiya, Hannah. Can we see you? Put up your hand. We're oh, here. Wow, the <laughs> Amazing. Welcome to Dove and Hannah. And of course, we also have to say hello to someone we only know by the name of Jet Sitter from, yeah. from Twitter. It's a Jet Sitter from Twitter. A brummy man. Who rearranged all... Uh, there you there are. He is. Who rearranged all his plans to come here tonight instead of from Belfast. And look, he got a front row seat. So yeah. give a big hand to Jet. Cade Milafolce. So, Tim, perhaps you can get the ball rolling. Okay. What's your favorite Dublin secret? Right, yes. We, we had to think about this because this is the, the theme of the night, uh, after all. And I thought, uh, interestingly enough, my favorite Dublin secret is in the name of Dublin itself. Uh, few, uh, most of you will probably know that the, the word Dublin comes from Dovlin, which means, does anyone know what it means? The Blackpool. Does anyone know where the Blackpool actually is? Exactly, yes. <laughs> One or two of you do, yes. The Blackpool is still here, just about f 500 meters that way, and it's um, beneath your feet when you're walking just beside Dublin Castle. You might have noticed a beautiful little circular green garden, and that Blackpool that gave its name to the city is flowing still, so yeah. What about you, Naomi? Okay, so you might know if you're walking up Dane Street and you look towards Dublin Castle, there's a gate, like a big archway, um, just at the entryway to Dublin Castle. <laughs> And on top of that archway, there's a statue in the form of a woman holding some scales. And that, of course, is the Statue of Justice. Now, Dublin Castle was the seat of British power in Ireland for hundreds and hundreds of years. Boo. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so the local Dubliners found a certain irony in the fact that justice personified was up there on the gate. So they made up a little rhyme about it. Does anyone know the rhyme? It goes oh. like this. <laughs> <laughs> there stands justice, regard well her station, her face to the castle, her arse to the nation. Oh, <laughs> ba-boom. Ba-boom, tish. <laughs> so anyway, a group of people who do, definitely do not have their arses to this nation are our lovely panel of guests who we have tonight. And first up, we have author and comedian, who you might know well, Tara Flynn, and also an honorary non-dub. Give a big hand for Tara Welcome. Flynn. Welcome. Welcome, Tara. For our second guest of the evening, we have, he's known as the godfather of gay. He's the founder of the Irish Queer Archive and the organizer of some of the earliest gay pride uh, marches in Ireland, Mr. Tony Walsh. Hey. You. And last but not least, we have a real veritable Dublin treasure. We have Terry Fagan, who runs the North Inner City's uh, Folklore Project, and he's written a ream of books, but also one on Dublin's long-lost red light district, The Monto. So please give a big hand for Terry. Woohoo! Fantastic. So, Tara, maybe we'll start hey. with you. As, <laughs> as someone, you're a Kinsale girl yourself. I am, originally, yeah. What was it like moving to Dublin for the first time? Well, I came to Dublin on the train with my bike and a tape recorder. I'm not messing. This isn't something from Edna O'Brien or anything like that now. Um, and so I moved up straight after college. I moved up and, uh, and started trying to get work in stage management, anything to do with acting, anything at all take classes and it was it was very different at the time it was I was living in a bed sit 
in, in Ranala, but it was like the size of uh, basically myself and, and another couple of feet. Uh, you could turn on the, the little stove from the bed with your, with your toe. Uh, that was a prerequisite, I think. Uh, but it was like it was like twenty-two pounds at the time, so it was it was very small, but it was doable mm. to be a shared bathroom. But sure, how else would you meet your neighbours? So it's <laughs> it was it was a very different place, but it was also a very exciting place because uh, I loved living in Cork. That's where I went to college. Um, uh, but it was I was always drawn to a, a bigger place, a bigger city, and Dublin was absolutely bustling at the time, and it was still still coming out of really dark and quite poor times. Everyone, everyone was broke. Was, there was very little work, but uh, it felt like a lot of people were making things at the time. And, uh, you know, it's sort of a flip side of what happened during the Celtic Tiger. So I loved that time, I have to say. Fantastic. Right, yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a really interesting thing about Dublin, actually. The, the city's physical form is very marked by boom and bust, actually. That's and, true. you know, visitors uh, to the city or people who live here all the time, I mean, one of the most distinctive things about the city are these big, long streets of red brick Georgian houses, of course. I think we have a picture of that somewhere, do we? If we can oh, get yeah, that up. Yeah, let's see the picture. Uh, yeah, right. Like there's these. Henrietta Street. Yeah, this is this is Henrietta Street. Uh, we chose this one because it's one of the mo the best preserved uh, Georgian streets uh, in the city. You should go there if you haven't uh, paid a visit recently. Uh, but as you can see from the picture, it's it's seen better days, and it was I mean older pictures that we found. It was in a, a much worse uh, state than this. And these buildings were built, of course, as mansions uh, for the elite uh, originally back in the 18th century. Uh, but then after the Act of Union with Britain, where Ireland effectively became part of the UK in 1801, uh, the local elite in Dublin left. And these buildings became tenements. And these big ballrooms and billiard rooms um, were, were squatted with, with families, sometimes multiple families in one room. So I'd love to ask you about this, uh, Terry. Yep. Uh, could you explain the story of these buildings and what's the secret history that we might well, know? Secret history, uh, where we come from, the north in the city there, that these big Georgian mansions, the, the story is, they say, when the rich marched out, the poor marched in, mm. and speculators bought up the property, and uh, we're in the north in the city, uh, where I am, there's a group of women who became known as the Madame Zamanto, and they bought up property in, in, the, in the area in the north in the city, and they set up one of the biggest red light districts in Europe. And, uh, and it's only a couple of streets, the Red uh, Monto, which is long gone now, but it was uh, 1,600 women operated in it. Wow. And it was, a, it, it, was, it was absolutely catered for everybody, from the lowest street cleaner up to the king. And, uh, no. <laughs> so. Can you tell us, like, so the Monto, I mean, back in the day, in its heyday, I think it was from about 1860 to 1920, something like that. Yep. And as you say, hundreds and hundreds of sex workers working there. And it, there are some traces of it left today, left today in the song, obviously popularised by the Dubliners, Take Me Up yeah. to Monto, you probably know it. And also it's in Ulysses, where it's called uh, Night Town. But yeah. what would it actually have been like? It's around the area of Gardner Street, Talbot Street kind of area. Like, visually, what would you have seen walking through the Monto back well, in the day? Well, back in the day there, as I said, you would have seen these massive Georgian houses. And uh, behind those Georgian houses were these small two-storey houses. And uh, basically they would have been, some of them, but as I say, but look, the, the area, there was only decent hard-working people living in that area. But what you had there in the, in the back of those was the two-storey houses, and they would have been the lower-class brothels. So the, the, the brothels in Monta were in first-class, second-class, third-class, and shilling houses. So as the girls lost the looks in the first-class, they went to the second-class, third-class, and then into the shilling houses. 
And then from the shilling houses, he went into the laneways. Mm. And it was all a kind of a, an, an industry, sex industry there. How have you collected these stories over the years? Yeah, well, over the years, like, uh, I, ju I just got into it by accident, maybe in 1970, when I started kind of helping out with the Meals on Wheels. And I, I met a lot of people who had who had been involved in the fight for Irish freedom and different things like that. But they started to talk about their, uh, about their stories. And uh, so they were in these tenement rooms. They were lonely. When we'd go in, they wanted someone to talk to. So I started getting the recorder and recording the stories. And some of them give us fantastic eyewitness accounts of these, these madams in Monto and what was going on, what it was like in the tenements. Some of the houses they were in, there was uh, over 100 people in them. One tiler in the backyard and one mortal tap. And uh, that's what you were doing. Uh, the rents would be about two or three shillings a week, and that was a lot of money for them those days. So, uh, as I said, there, wasn't, there wouldn't be no electricity, or very little in the way of gas, and that people slept on straw uh, in various ways. And uh, but in amongst that, as I said, you had the madams, and you had the you had the, the rack rent and tier landlords, and you had all sorts of squeeze being put on the poor in, in the city. And uh, a, lot of w a lot of women, some of the women were forced out. The only way they could survive was become involved in the prostitution end of it. Right, okay. And you were mentioning, which is a very uh, good point, of course, 1,600 sex workers in a city that was, of course, much smaller at the time is, is extraordinary in, in just a few streets. Uh, but you were mentioning, of course, that there was this kind of strange dynamic of, of demand because of all the conflict in Ireland, so that you had all these barracks and British soldiers coming in for the yep. War of Independence, the 1916 yep. Rising, and then, of course, um, uh, all of them suddenly leaving uh, after independence. Uh, you, you mentioned um, uh, something very interesting to me earlier about a little trick um, that there was to steal people's clothes and to leave them leave them act actually naked when they came out of the water. Yeah, you see, look, when the sailors come in from, because the reason why Monta was, it's only about five minutes walk to the, to, to the River Liffey and where the ships would come in. The sailors come in laden with money in, into the red light district. And of course, like everything in Monta was all about taking everything off them, right? They weren't going to go back with anything, even including the clothes. So we have stories where they're, they're coming in, plenty of money, well-dressed or whatever it was, and then going back with just newspaper around them, back to the <laughs> ships. And everything was taken. Everything was just taken. Like, you know. And as I said, the pimps used to grease up the window sashes on the lower ground floor brothels, because uh, the beds were on the ground floor and beside the window. And the, the, the girl was told, when he get the client into the room, get him to throw his clothes at the end of the bed. And while he was doing the business, the pimps could lift up the window and take the clothes off the bed and take the money, then accuse them of coming into the brothel and not having any money. And for those men that were in a hurry, that would throw the clothes onto the floor, they get into the bed with the girl. These pimps had the long pole with a hook on it and they just hook up the clothes. So it was all about rip, ripping off everything. You know? <laughs> Getting max value. Mm. And it's about survival, sure. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah sure. Mm. I, I, it's, it's almost like a Dickens novel. But, um, <laughs> uh, like to link in now with, with Tony, Tony's uh, queer history, were, were all of these sex workers women? Yeah, most of them that we know of were women, like, you know. We always maintain that there could have been some kind of, uh, what you call it, drug dens in, the, in those places, because mm. that was naturally comes along with prostitution. But we've heard little in the way of anything else but just the, the women uh, operating the prostitution there. And as I said, it was all controlled by women, because the Madame Zamanto, they, they, they ran the area with a northern fist, and they employed the hardest guys that could fight to, to man the doors and inside the brothels. And when the girls were on the streets and walking from the laymates, if there was two entrances to a laymate, there was a pimp up one end, a pimp up the other. 
you saw a lot of uh, purpose to be there was to, uh, if the client went down the lanes with the girls and didn't pay for the sex and he tried to run out, these guys are on the top of the lanes and the girl shouts out, he hasn't paid. So these guys carried lead pipes and he cu carried cutthroat razors. Oh. And it was all about making sure that they got their money. And, uh, and uh, uh, the other side of the coin, uh, they were also there to keep check on how many men the girls are going to be with. So they made sure when he went back in the morning time to the madam, that all the money was brought forward, that she couldn't say I was only with 10 men when he'd have, to, he'd have a markdown for 15 men, right. you know? And what was actually, what sounded the end of the mantra? What was, how did it come to an end? Well, it came to the end through to a religious group that was set up in Dublin in 1921, which would have been the Legion of Mary, set up by uh, founder Frank Duff, who was actually secretary to Michael Collins, the famous Michael Collins. And uh, he set up the Legion of Mary and, uh, in 1921. And basically, his way of bring, uh, set up the Legion of Mary was he encountered a number of women in, in, the, in the house on the south side of the city, and he quickly found out these, these, were, these were prostitutes, but the house they were in wasn't a brothel or anything like that, it was just a lodging house. So he sent on a crusade helping them, and then he did, by the help, with the help of the Irish Free State, they, they, they gave them a building, and he set up the first Sanctum Maria Hostel for for prostitutes on the south side of the city, actually around uh, uh, Stevens Green there, near that area there, Harcourt Street. And then basically that was up and running. And um, what brings stuff into the, Frank Duff, the founder of Legion of Mary, into, into the Monto was two of the women had left the hostel on the south side and come back into the sex trade in the north inner city. And he said, more or less, there was no point of tackling prostitution on the south side of the city when it's more rampant on the north side of the city. So he came on, a, he led a crusade into it. Now, People had them, the, the, the Legion Mary associated with the Miraculous Medal, right, a religious medal. And basically people dubbed them as the Miraculous Meddlers because you're meddling <laughs> in the sex trade, you know. So I'd, I'd love to get Tony in here, actually, because, of course, the, the queer history of Dublin is also something that can be quite hidden. And it's also a lot more recent, right, in, in lots of, in lots of uh, occasions. Uh, so could you tell us what was it like before the decriminalization of homosexuality just to be gay in the city? Well, first of all, the reason why it was quite hidden was because it came shrouded in transgressiveness and taboo and criminality. And that, all of that really only changed from the early 70s onwards. I mean, the Lesbian Gay Civil, Civil Rights Movement was founded in Belfast in 71, 72. I love puncturing Dublin centricity by reminding people that actually gay rights started in Belfast before Dublin. And in many ways, when you think about it, actually, Belfast had more to lose, not unlike today. It was very, society was very stratified around gender, ethnicity, sexuality, uh, religious identity. <clears throat> but um, from the, from the mid-70s onwards, things began to flourish and people began to sort of like try and shape both a social and socio-cultural and political scene for themselves. But it was still actually quite fraught. I mean, when the, the Hirschfeld Center was set up in Found Street in 1979. I think we have a picture of that, actually, if we can put that up. <coughs> we do, yeah. yeah Dublin City Council, by the way, it kills me, but oh, that's Flickers. That's actually the, the Flickers Halloween ball. Flickers is a Dutch word for faggots. It's a really offensive term, even today. But it had a very nice 70s disco ring to it in 1979 when the building was set up. <laughs> Flickers. But it was also a political statement. You're going to the faggots dance club, you know? <laughs> Um, this is a photograph by Tony O'Shea, he's living in Philadelphia now, and it's one of the, it's the last social event in the building before the building was torched after its nine-year history in 1987. 
We were actually refused a lottery grant of a measly quarter of a million to rebuild it. This would, be, would have been Ireland's second attempt at an LGBT community centre. For anyone who has any association with Dublin City Council, last June they actually put up a marble plaque outside the building and every time I pass it I feel like getting up with a marker and defacing the plaque because they clearly didn't do their history and they, they claim it's Ireland's first uh, gay and lesbian community centre, which it isn't. There was another one on the north side. Uh, possibly because it was on the north side, it's never been recognised for what it was. Um, um, but the building, actually, when it opened, was quite extraordinary. It's on, it's on Found Street, where the street dips down towards the Keys Bar. And actually, where it dips down by Temple Bar Gallery, that used to be the, the, a slipway into the river before the Duke of Ormond, um, one the butlers, built up the Keys in the late 1600s. There was a ferry there that would take you across the river to uh, Lower Liffey Street. And the ferry was only, uh, was only, they only stopped the ferry in 1712, whenever the Hapney Bridge was actually built. But here's the thing, it was a notorious place for sex workers uh, through the late Middle Ages, the Bagnio Slip, it was called, where, where, where Temple Bar Square is now. Mm. By the way, when we opened the Hirschfeld Centre, that was a car park. Half the street was derelict. You see the odd fox. And it was probably one of the reasons why we... Like we, yourself. We, oh. <laughs> we'll talk later. Uh, it was probably why it was... Even though it was off the main drag, Dame Street, it just felt it was slightly secluded and a little bit seedy. You know, parts of Temple Bar that were really dangerous to walk around in the 70s and even early 80s. Great for cruising, by the way. That's another st story for another day. Uh, I'll tell you about the threesome I had down in Love Lane, actually, later on. But... Uh, I mean, please go ahead. Go on, We're not go on. Let's hear the story. <laughs> go on. But, uh, but actually, I'm getting back to the Bagnio slip. The gas thing is, um, I mean, literally half the street was derelict. And I don't know if, if you, um, you probably know this, but the BBC used to come over to Dublin and use derelict Temple Bar as a stand-in for World War II bombed oh. London. That's how derelict the place was. And that was the case up until like around the early 90s when there was a major reconstruction effort. And Dublin City Council also decided they needed to up the population of the inner core because nobody was living here. Everyone had moved to the suburbs or whatever. So it seemed like the ideal place to, um, to build a, a new community centre. And actually when it opened, it was one of the earliest of its type in the world, mm. which also tells you something about how patched in Irish queers were to sort of global events. But um, the Bagnio slip, where those prostitutes hang out, sex workers, the word, the vernacular word to describe, and it was a shady word, to describe prostitutes, it was always about female sex workers, up to the late 1700s was you were a gay woman. And I actually loved, I mean, it really was a term of abuse. And it only became actually claimed by gay people in 1920s jazz era in New York and then sort of filtered into mainstream use. And actually, talk, just talking about that, the Evening Herald was still using the word in inverted commas up until 1989 as if it was some sort of like alien concept. They couldn't bring themselves uh, to actually recognize that this was a descriptor that people were using. But I quite liked the fact that there was one sort of harried sexual minority down there at the Bagnio Slip uh, and we sort of moved into the area to sort of reclaim it. And, and actually, you could argue it's never been recognized. It's never been given recognition for how it, along with the Project Arts Center and the Irish Film Institute kick-started the cultural rejuvenation of the area. Mm. 
And it's worth remembering as well that I think Dublin City Council was considering flattening the entire Temple Bar area and making it into a big parking for a big bus station where they sure. would just park all the buses. Sure. And only through the activism of the people who were here was it saved were they, with an alternative vision for a creative centre. And then Tom Cruise came and put the cobbles in. That's right. Do you remember, it played Boston, can, Temple Bar played can, Boston. Can you, for, for people who might know, can you explain that? Yeah, so in Far and Away, a lot of Boston is Temple Bar. And uh, and Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman basically put down the cobbles themselves for it. <laughs> just, just on that part of there, part of the Monto is in Temple Bar because he took the cobblestone sets from the inner city and put them into Temple Bar. So, at a fiver ago, by the way, it yeah. cost five pounds right. to lay each each limestone cobble when they were doing it. And actually, it was quite remarkable because I used to fall out of Side Stance Club, which is on the site of <laughs> the Mercantile Hotel on, on Dame Street. It was Ireland's first commercial gay club. Amazing. Amazing. We used to get away with murder. It was before, basically, drugs and dancing was sort of commodified and the police started uh, scoping it. So, like, you just hadn't a clue. Well, I'm talking about, like, the 80s. So, like, you'd stay there until, like, 5 o'clock in the morning mm. and then come in and they'd have a tea dance in the restaurant on Sunday for those of us who were doing a rollover. Uh, <laughs> but... But... Uh, but um, uh, I remember coming out of it a couple of times and just wandering back down to Temple Bar. This is, like... 89, 90, when the film was made, 91 maybe? And it was like an open air set for about six months. They'd have a few security guards and like Temple Lane would be done up like a sort of scaldy, scaldy sex. They did actually have a brothel on the street at one point. It was, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, there were, yeah, yeah, the brothel was there for ages actually. Yeah. They had the boarding house where they lived, which also functioned as, as a brothel. Far and away, you have, if you haven't seen it, watch it. It's Temple Bar. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> what? What about current day secret Dublin, Tara? Mm. I might ask you, do you have any secret Dublin, I don't know, Dublin secrets that are a favourite with you? I do, and I'm going to go back to first arriving in Dublin and, and bring it up to today, because I'm, I'm no longer in Dublin Comedy Improv, which operates out of the International Bar. When I moved to Dublin in 1990, the International Comedy Club had started in 1989, the year before, and to me, the idea that there was a comedy club you could go and see. So it wasn't the jury's cabaret with the owl lads dressed as leprechauns. Or, there were some great comics back in the day doing the jury's cabaret type stuff. But it was mostly for American tourists. It was kind of paddy whackery and stuff like that. The idea that younger people were, uh, were doing jokes and sometimes very surreal things. And just anything they wanted to do with no money in it. There was no money. There was no career. They weren't going for a telly job. It was just coming out funny. So um, Dermot Carmody, um, Barry Kevin, so Barry Murphy, uh, Kevin Gilty, and Ardlo Hanlon were Mr. Trellis. They were a group called Mr. Trellis. And they started on a Wednesday night. And when I moved to Dublin, I started going to, going to the International every Wednesday. And then Michelle Reed, who I ended up doing a school's theatre tour with, we did Cúchulainn uh, Leahulla, which was Cúchulainn, the hero of Ulster. Uh, Michelle and I played the front and back of the dog. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we did. Uh, we were the hound. Uh, this was for the very smallies, but I did get to play Scáhach, the warrior, and, and fight Cúchulainn in the second half of the show. This was all before 10am. It was really... <laughs> <laughs> the glamour. Acting is very glamorous, I'd have you know. So, um, so that was grand. But then Michelle was doing... The she had started doing this improv night on a Monday. The improv is still on. It's still, it's the long, one of the second longest running comedy club in Ireland. It's the longest running improv group in Ireland. Every Monday night, the improv is on. It's only a fiver in the, uh, in the international bar upstairs. Um, and they make stuff up as they go along. You'll know loads of people from the telly. Um, and it's, people, people don't really know about it. When a residency is that old, mm. there's no publicity for it. 
and people forget that it's there. But it is such an institution now, but a lot of people don't know about it. I would encourage you to go to the improv. Thanks, okay, great well, tip. Yeah. Good tip for anyone visiting, absolutely, or anyone living here anyway. Um, Terry, uh, you also mentioned to me something that was very intriguing, a system of long lost tunnels. Yeah, tell us about the, the tunnels. Yeah, the, the, the I often need a tunnel, Terry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the area of Monto is actually, uh, with all these brothels and things like that, the part of Dublin was being developed, but some of, them would, some of the houses that the, ma the madams end up buying were a kind of a link to these tunnels. And uh, there are massive underground tunnels. And I was in a few of them and I videoed them and retrieved, uh, I don't know where the bag is gone, but oh. I, I retrieved some, for, uh, some, uh, some Victorian coins and uh, lamp standards and things like that. But these are massive underground tunnels. And really and truly, you could drive a carriage through them. And they would have been beautiful for, to, to, to preserve and to, to organise some events in the whole lot. They were, they, were, they were filled in. And where exactly are they now? Now, they're, they're on Railway Street. Uh, that's, see, the Monto was, is the lower end of... Uh, the, the Monto is surrounded by the lower end of Garner Street, the bottom end of Talbot Street, <coughs> onto lower Buckingham Street, and onto lower Sean McDermott Street. And the Monto is in the centre of that. And the, those tunnels are in those streets there. Now, we know there's only... As far as I know, there's only one left, and that's linked to the famous Magdalen Laundries that's there, huh. that backs onto Railway Street. We know there's a big, massive tunnel there, and because uh, it was... Uh, it, it was they had uh, people looking at it there because of the Tune Baby thing. Mm. They were checking it out, and things that... We know that one is still there, but we don't... See, what happens is these, these tunnels... These tunnels are... When they start developing in the area, these tunnels are, are being discovered, mm. right? And uh, so, and ba basically, they're not going to preserve them. They're going to build on them, so that they fill them in, mm. you know. And that, that, that does bring us on to another um, very poignant secret in the city. These behind these high walls of streets that people pass every day, we have these horrific, brutal things happening that we're only really beginning to discover in the last uh, decade or two. Um, you have a particular story about one figure who's very interesting, um, a figure named Jemmy, Jemmy Gunnery, uh, who used to break in to these notorious um, state-run institutions um, where, where really um, children would be sent as a kind of form of uh, institutionalization, a kind of form of punishment, depending on, on the context, and break them out and help them escape. Uh, could you tell us uh, about this? Yeah, he, he, after his death, he was dubbed uh, Dublin's Otto Schindler, as in Schindler's List. And uh, I had to think to, to work with him because uh, he worked with my father on the docks. And when my father was dying, uh, he told my father that he'd look after his family when he, when he passed on, which he did. Jimmy did look after us, but we didn't know about his hidden secret. And uh, until my brother, uh, Christy, he was caught stealing rosary beads. And the judge gave him seven years for stealing the rosary beads. How old was he then? He was around seven or eight years of age at the time. And he was sent to an industrial school called Artane. And uh, so Jemmy came up to the house. The mother was all upset. And he knelt down, took her hand, and he told her not to be worried and not to be crying, that he would rescue him. And he would take him out of Ireland over to England because he had some people in England who took children for them uh, out, out, out of the country and they, they'd keep them there. So Christy was in Artane and eventually uh, Christy escaped himself without Jemmy having to rescue him. He was captured and sent back and then he, uh, they, we went back up and they sent him off to another industrial school which was down, down, down in Letterfrack, uh, down the west of Ireland and then from there he went into, uh, into another industrial school uh, in Clonmel. And, uh, but Jemmy Gunnery was, was tracking them all the time. And eventually then he, he succeeded in getting them and I went down to help. 
And uh, so we went down and it was unbelievable escape because RT done the documentary on it. It's a radio documentary called The Rungers. And it's a fantastic, if you get a chance, go and listen to it. And Channel 4 done a bit of a documentary on this man and he broadcast it from the Vatican. Uh, but Jemmy, Jemmy went down there and we went with him. And uh, Christy, it was a sports day in the industrial school and Christy was running around and I stepped out of the crowd and I said, Christy, and he stopped. He seen me mother, he seen Jemmy. I said, I'm here to get you, son, you're going home. And they said, go around with the school, I'll cover you. So Christy took off like an Olympic runner, I have to tell you. And we got him into the car and we sped away from the industrial school. Now, I thought we were coming straight back to Dublin. Jemmy, no. He took us into the ruins of one of the old monasteries in, 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 uh, in, in Tipperary, the Rock of Cashel. And we hid there till about two or three in the morning. Jemmy had some flasks of tea and sandwiches and that. And he took, took, him, took us uh, back into, back into the inner city, where Jemmy had a groups of women who were secretly hiding these children for him. When he'd rescued them, he, they'd hide the children. And where, so, where, would, where would they hide them? Which? Where would they hide the children? Where would he hide where? them? Yeah. yeah, okay. So these were rooms that the police didn't know about. These were families that had no, no trouble with the police. And they, these women offered to take children in and to, and to help them, right? And uh, we took us up to Wandham Pauline. And she, she took him in, and we were there. And you know, Jemmy's plan was to get him out of because he'd only three years to go every seven years and, uh, to get him to England. And my brother wouldn't go. And Jemmy stormed, actually turned on him and said, look, we're not the effing rescuing you, he said, and you won't do what you're told. You know, you need to go to England. Or the police are going to come and rescue, uh, arrest you again. And my brother wouldn't go. And then Jemmy stormed out of the house and eventually came back in. And he sat down at the table and he stared at my brother. My brother kind of had wavy hair, and uh, he said to him, right, Christy, he said, you're not going to England. You're going to stay here, and you're going to see your mother every day. And we were going to say, how the hell is he going to do this? So he said to Christy, you can stay here as long as you do any, everything I ask you to do. And my brother said, I will, Mr. Gunnery, I will do that. So Jimmy said, from now on, Christy, you're going to be dressed up as a young girl. <laughs> right? So for two years of his life, he walked the streets of Dublin disguised as a young girl. Right? And eventually he was captured on his last final year. And uh, he was then... Uh, now, in fairness uh, to the police, they, they, they took him down the whole lot. So they rang the industrial school up saying that they had him, and the Christian brothers said, we don't want him anymore. He's too much trouble, because he's escaping out of everywhere. And, uh, but then again, the policeman said, by law he was sentenced to seven years, and by law he must lose seven years. So they sent him down from there into a detention centre in Marlborough House in Glasnevin. And from there then, he went into St. Patrick's Institution at Boston, and he finished his time there. And came out around 1968, I think it was. And because he was dressed up as a young girl for that long, he swore he'd never let his hair grow again. And to this day, he has his hair shaved. He's got his head shaved, goes around. What an incredible story. Absolutely incredible yeah. story. Yeah. And it's, I mean, that's a real, it's such an interesting <coughs> sense of, of a secret history. Uh, because in the last decade or two, of course, the whole yeah. country has reacted to the scandals of these institutions with, yeah. with a, a sense of shock, like nobody knew it was happening, I suppose, or we knew it was happening, but we didn't know it was that bad. And yeah. um, this, this narrative totally counteracts that, yeah. that there were actual safe houses, people yeah. uh, actively protecting children yeah. and disguising them. Yeah. Mm. Well, the only one woman left, I said, Pauline, when my brother, when, when they decided to dress him up as a young girl, she gave me his first polka dot dress, 
his cardigan and his plastic sandals. That was his first dress, uh, girls' clothes that he got. Mm. Like, but you see, all these, all these women that were doing this, right? So, but generally, you wouldn't go in and just break a child out of the industrial school for the sake of doing that. The parents would want to have the child rescued, and then he would facilitate that. And then, if he needed a space, a bit of time, or a couple of days, these safe houses were there for the thing, to give them time to get things to, together. Now, a child was quite safe, as long as he didn't go back to the family home. Because one thing the police didn't know, who your aunts and uncles or cousins were, right? So they could put the child out there in the, in the outskirts of the city, or else take them off into England. And that's where a lot of them, uh, uh, people did go into. Because when, it was a hidden, it was a terrible tragedy in Ireland's history, that those industrial schools. I mean, there was thousands upon thousands of children went into those places. And a lot of them, when they come out, a lot of them, many of them never stayed back in Ireland. They left Ireland never to return. It died in, in the likes of in England and all over the place. That was similar to many, many uh, lesbians and gay men and even heterosexual people who just didn't fit, fit felt they fit the, the gender and sexual uh, stratification, rigid stratification that existed in Irish society for so long. When, when we um, brought in marriage equality and last year the government, the Taoiseach, made... Uh, uh, formal apology in the Doyle about um, on the, the 25th anniversary of decriminalization made a formal apology to men who by and gay men who'd been convicted of consensual sexual offenses and there were many under the old British legislation um, he recognized the the trauma uh, and the stress that had been caused to the families of those men but something that wasn't mentioned at the time and it's often it's I think about it a lot is the, the, the hidden impact of that legislation right throughout the 20th century, we've no way of quantifying the thousands upon thousands of men and lesbians who weren't specific criminally penalized, but they were affected by the, this aura, this culture of criminality. Thousands and thousands of men and women who just felt they had to leave the country in search of um, a better life and go to some more socially liberal cities like Berlin or New York or San Francisco or Amsterdam or whatever. Yeah. And, it's, and it, it kills me that we've no access to many of those stories, people who felt that the country just didn't, had no place and no love for them. Uh, back bef before 1993, when people were leaving in droves uh, for that very reason, what was it like to organise the very first gay pride parades in the city? I would have been 22. Well, there was, Pride has been run in Dublin since 1979, Pride Week. The very first Pride event was 10 men and women from Belfast and Dublin um, protesting outside the British Embassy in Balls Bridge because it was old Victorian legislation. There was, you could get 10 years in prison for uh, intercourse and two years in prison for any form of affection. Holding hands, kissing, two years in prison. And by the way, that law existed, that's what's the law that sent Oscar Wilde to prison and ruined his life. That law ex remained on the statute books until 1993. So if you ever wonder why two men or two women still feel uncomfortable, although some of that's changed since marriage equality, still feel uncomfortable about showing affection on street, something that should be the most ordinary, banal thing, just linking or whatever else, it's that sort of, that a legacy Mm. of oppression that has affected people. Rory O'Neill Panty has actually talked about this before, this sort of reluctance to hold hands or whatever. Even something simple, like I was in a bar 
on Dame Street. It's now the centre, the gay centre, funny enough. <laughs> but I was in, it was a bar. It was also a CD strip bar at one point, La Pella's or somewhere down, down below. But I was in a bar in 1981, so it was my first boyfriend. I'm 20 in love for the first time, you know, trying to negotiate domesticity and there's no manual for how to do the gay relationship. And we're in the bar holding hands. That's all at a gig. We weren't even necking now. And uh, we're just holding hands and the manager comes out and says, out, I don't want you fuckers in here. And we just had to leave because we were criminals and we were actually engaging, just this was actually a criminal, a, a criminal act, but of course it was all the social, social problem that went to that. So that's the, the culture within which we organized the first Pride Weeks. We had Pride Weeks from 1979 onwards. My first one was 1980, so I'm a stroppy 19-year-old wanting to go out and change the world and everything. You know, it's sort of arrogance of youth and everything. And, um, there just weren't enough people to organize a march or a parade, and there were marches in those days. You're sort of protesting your pride. There's no sort of party going on. So the highlight of pride was a picnic on Marion Square. And it was a very middle-class affair, like cheese, wine, cheese and crackers and everything. And we're all wearing our pink triangle badges, which is a symbol of gay liberation before that fucking rainbow flag arrived. <laughs> but anyway... Uh, and uh, the, Controversial. Park, the park warden actually asked us to leave the bloody park because we were a spectacle and we were just like, those pufters need to fucking clear out of here. Um, uh, and the day beforehand, 16 of us wandered around the streets of Dublin palming people with four-page leaflets explaining the history of the Stonewall riots and asking people to sort of be a supporter sort of abused shoppers, like uh, reading about gay rights for the first time. Um, and that sort of continues on. There was a tradition of that throughout the 80s until we had the notorious Declan Flynn case. Does anyone know the De De Declan Flynn case? Yeah, maybe Park. we could explain that for our... So there was a culture, there was a series of gruesome beatings and murders in Belfast, Cork and Dublin right throughout the 70s and 80s. And there's actually been some major articles written about homosexual homicides, the culture of homosexual homicides and overkill, and actually shocking stories. And um, Declan Flynn was this 33-year-old with a speech impediment, shy guy, uh, walking through Fairview Park. He might have been cruising, it doesn't really matter. And in fact, you know, lots of men cruised public toilets and parks because simply there was no other place to show affection. You'd be like me, being kicked out of a bar. You know, gay bars only became a thing in the, in the 80s after places like the Hirschfeld Centre enabled it. Um, he's walking through the park and he's set upon by four, five youths ranging in age from 14 to 18. The 18 year old was a soldier. They beat the bejesus out of him, left him choking to death on his own blood. And the police were very quickly were able to round up the killers because some gay activists had been shadowing these vigilantes for months beforehand, knowing what was happening, and had even given evidence to the police, had been laughed out of a cop station in Clontarf from Reno. Um, but they rounded them up, and when it came to court in March 1983, <coughs> excuse me, the guys got character references from a load of religious people, including Father Peter McVeary, saying they came from good families, everything else, north inner city heads. Um, but they actually defended themselves in court by saying that they were up in the court, and I'm quoting, there's reams of press reportage in this, by the way, now in the Irish Career Archive and the National Library. They defended themselves in court by saying that they were in the park to clear it of pufters, queers, and steamers, and thought they were actually doing a public service. The justice, Frank Gannon, 
dipshit, sorry, am I allowed <laughs> to say that? Frank Gannon let them off with suspended manslaughter sentences. Essentially saying that the gay man's life had no value. And by that stage, we had had enough. It was just ridiculous. It, had been, it was just simply, it had gone on for so long, these murders, and there was no recognition of just the sheer brutality and unfairness of it all. So it, it compelled people to actually come out, and it led to the very first large-scale public demonstration by gay people on the island of Ireland. About four or five hundred of us on a bitter cold March day, outside Liberty Hall, with all our straight allies from like radical student union groups, um, civil liberty groups like ICCL, um, some of the more left-field political parties. And we marched up. So I'm an angry and fearful 22-year-old. We marched up um, North Strand... Amiens Street, out to Fairview Park, past Declan's Killers, who had been let out a couple of nights beforehand, and were li had lit celebratory bonfires to mark the fact that they'd been released from prison. And I actually thought I was going to have stones lobbed at me. That was the, the atmosphere. Got up to Fairview Park, made some speeches. Uh, and it led to a lot of, there was, I mean, a lot of um, um, browbeating in the media, amongst politicians. It was the first time ever that the Doyle actually had conversations about the reality of, gay, of lesbian gay men's oppression at the time. But actually, nothing happened afterwards. They still didn't change laws or anything. The only good upshot of all of that, the, pos the only good positive thing out of that tawdry period, is that it led to Dublin's first Pride Parade. Because here's the thing. You get several hundred stroppy dykes and faggots out in the streets. Nobody is going back into the closet again, because people are just going, no, sorry, we were having our day. So a few months later, actually... It, it led to about 150 of us from all over the country, which was great. There were people from Galway, from Belfast, from Cork, Waterford. Um, about 150 of us um, met at the top of, of Grafton Street, and they just pedestrianised Grafton Street. It's hard to think that the 15B bus used to go down Grafton Street and take 40 minutes, by the way. Um, um, but we met at the top of the street, and the police wanted us to go down Dawson Street, to, to O'Connell Street, and we were going... Mm, 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 mm. We're having our day in the sun. We're going down to the shopping precinct, okay, because we've got a captive audience. And it was such an exuberant, fierce sense of occasion. And here's the thing, unlike sort of current day parades where there's 50,000 people, 100,000 people spectating in the corporate sector tripping over themselves um, to cover themselves in glory or whatever, <clears throat> here's the thing, People were, st we were still protesting our pride. I mean, the gas thing is, it wasn't even called a gay pride uh, parade. It was called the Gay Rights Protest March. But I, it's still, still so clearly embedded in my mind, walking down Grafton Street, seeing the reaction of people, and people were actually fairly benign, and then coming up uh, with Smorland Street, and then you've just, got, you've just got the expanse of the river, the street opens up, and you've got... Of course, now we've got the spire, which is gorgeous. But you've just got it. You're arriving in O'Connell Street and going, we are reclaiming our streets mm. after people have been murdered using these streets. And then we got to the GPO. Now, there were no stewards or anything. It was very ad hoc. It really was. No stewards or anything. Very colourful, very noisy. And there's a reviewing stand where the spire is now. There's a great photograph of me somewhere online with this. There's a reviewing stand where the spire is. And the government had set it up for the National Children's Day Parade, which was happening the next day on the Sunday. But us being opportunists, queers, decided, 
we're having a reviewing stand. So within, <laughs> within a few minutes, it's covered with banners and posters and everything. It's, and somebody's got a bullhorn and three of us make speeches. And then the 150 people and our supporters are just standing around O'Connell Street with the police and shoppers looking bewildered, going, who the fuck are these people? Um, no, like cars trying to drive through and everything. I mean, it was quite chaotic, but fabulous. And uh, we made our speeches, and Joni Crone, uh, one of Ireland's most public lesbians, she's a poet writer, she'd come out on the Late Late Show in 1980, so we're talking about three years later. She made the final speech, and she basically, she rewrote her speech as a sort of, like a counterpoint to the 1916 Declaration of the Republic, but queered it up. And the very end of it was, and now I want to rededicate the GPO as the Gay Persons Organization. <laughs> Fantastic. I'd, I'd love to bring you in, actually, Tara, because like, I feel like the last few decades, obviously, in Ireland has been a time of massive transformation. And you were part of that as well, you know, as quite a visible person in the, in the referendums that we've had. How, in what ways has Dublin changed since you first moved here? Well, it's really changed. I'm actually thinking of a Cork story based off what Tony's just said, because... I just, I mean, apart from the extreme, the, the extreme stuff like the violence that, that happened to, uh, to gay people, uh, there was casual homophobia was just totally accepted. And um, I, I mean, you'd, you'd, you'd feel uncomfortable when you'd hear people, but it was just like you wouldn't take them up on it because, you, because you'd be like, well, that's what they think. And sure, if it's illegal, sure. You know, I remember my sister and myself, I had just been busking on Winthrop Street. See, always a performer uh, in Cork. Um, opposite the McDonald's, which had just opened. And um, I was, uh, uh, <laughs> I had just finished, I was meeting my sister, and this guy came up to us, and I think he must have gone, well, she, you know, she has a tambourine, so they must be kind of arty or kind of okay in some way. Yeah. But he went bright red, like he went bright red, and he just went, um, he just said, I hope what I'm about to say doesn't offend you. So this is probably 88 or 9. He said, I hope what I'm about to say doesn't offend you. And uh, we were like, okay, what? And he said, well, um, I'm down from Dublin for the day. And he said, well, that is quite offensive. But um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. And, and, and then he said, oh, I'm, I'm gay. I'm gay. He kind of whispered, I'm, I'm gay. And I, I'm just looking. I know there's a gay-friendly bar near here, but I don't know where. I'm really sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And we said, oh, yes, we know what you mean. We know where it is. And we told him where it was. And we went, like, he went off. And he was practically kissing the ground with gratitude. Yeah. And we felt like shit. We just felt so shit because we were like, you should be able to go and, and meet people. You should be able to fall in love. You should be able to. And one of the reasons that I wanted to campaign during Magical, I think of him all the time. And I just was like, okay, I've got to stand up and do whatever I can, whatever small thing, write a sketch, whatever small thing. It's not going to be anywhere near the contribution of people like Tony. But it is like, I can stand up and go, okay, I don't want that lad to feel embarrassed or that he's going to be offending me by saying who he is. Mm. So I guess that's one of the motivations I had. So, but it has changed so radically. So when, when you think of the 80s, it's really not that long ago in lots of ways. It's eons and eons and eons ago in terms of progress in Ireland because there is no way I would have thought, like the Magdalene Laundries were open till 90, the last one closed mm. in 96. I was 27 years old. Like, that is my adult lifetime, and I never thought we'd get to where we are. And I think we have to fight for it, because there is pushback. We are already seeing it. And a lot of the, the far-right stuff that's happening in Ireland is pushback to the progress. Mm. And we've got to keep a real... I, we've, it's so hard-earned, 
and it's such an amazing place when we fight for and achieve those things, we've got to hold on to it. Uh, 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 Interesting fact, actually. Mm. I just want to add to that. Um, do you know Kaylin Hogan? She wrote a book called The Republic yes. of Shame. Yes, yep. yes. So I was speaking to her on Friday, and she told me that there was a, mo a mother and baby home in Donegal that actually only closed in 2003. <gasps> but it's called The Castle. But it's like it's just an unknown story yeah, yeah, that she yeah. uncovered. Oh, I, I was just going to say, actually, I mean, you mentioned, uh, like, that, that your voice isn't as loud as voices like Tony's, but of course, um, like, comedy is such a unique discourse as well, where you get to really go to taboo and really go to the edges of people's comfort zones. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually really over the edges. <laughs> I'm over them. I'm over edge lord comedy. I remember even 10 years ago, the stuff I look back on that I was doing myself, trying to kind of skirt that edge because I thought it was a requirement. And actually, I don't know that it is. Mm. Um, and especially if it's not your edge. So mm. I, can't, I can't skirt around someone else's edge. Because sure. what a Dick, that would make me. Now, and dicks can be marvelous things. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, come on. So, look, but it's like, I'm so over it. I think it's lazy. Right. And I think, so I'm, I'm, I'm taking on board what you say. Yes, you can go. And what I loved to do, and still like to do, is find, like, I did a whole show last year, uh, directed by um, Philly McMahon, who you've worked as well with, Tony. And, uh, but it was called Not a Funny Word. It was about my own story of having to travel for abortion. And I did loads and loads of jokes in it. Mm. Now, they weren't about the, the, uh, the journey itself, but they were self-deprecating jokes. There were jokes about my life. There were jokes about the attitudes here. There were jokes about the extreme end of the discourse about it. But... So that was my edge. I'm allowed to play there. Mm. I'm not allowed to play with someone else's edge. I think it's lazy. And I think, I think it kind of it belittles other people's experiences. And I think comedy it doesn't have to be, doesn't mean it has to be soft. Mm. It doesn't have to be soft. It doesn't have to pull punches. But who, who, who are you punching? Right. And so I think it is great to skirt, skirt with the edges and play with taboos so long as it is your playing field. But yeah. also it can be about... Uh, sending up authority as well, right? That's really important. Mm -hmm. And to puncture things that are overly pompous or whatever. But here's the thing. I've been thinking a lot about this lately. Yes, when people talk about woke, oh, woke comedy. It's like, I, I don't know what that is. Things are either funny or they're not. I hate performative anything. So performative uh, affection, performative goodness, or but so performative wokeness is really tedious. Performative wokeness is really tedious. If someone's not also taking action or being in some way productive or in their lives in terms of what the stuff they're saying, if they're not walking the walk as well as talking the talk, it's performative. But way more tedious than performative wokeness is performative unwokeness. It's so dull. It's like the, the people who came up with the terms virtue signalers. I say fucking signal the, the shit. Signal it. Because the signaling devices has, has made the world into quite a cold and dark place recently. And I think any bit of pushback to that is useful right now. That's, right. that's Can I just quickly sense. jump in here on, on this? Because what Tara is also talking about is how, how we can ultimately be agents for change. There's, a, there's a sh the direct shorthand that we're all aware of, which is parliamentary politics, yeah. uh, either local government or, or national uh, national government there's that there's that strand of, of 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 change or aspiring for change and i've stood for election before it, it wasn't successful <coughs> excuse me uh, but I realized I didn't have enough of a thick skin for some of the shocking deprivation and stories I came across from from uh, knocking on people's doors and everything I didn't have the same power for that but it also struck me and again, something that was informed by my feminist mother, you know, 
if you if you if you um, acknowledge that the personal is political, just the way we shape our lives, going out and actually being real, being real, is an extraordinary political act, mm. and it can be really subversive. Mm. And you know, there's people out there watching. I'm sure there's people who are watching you going. I want to be that Tara Flynn. I want to be like that Tara don't. Flynn. No. You know? because, no. be, don't. No. Don't we all want to be because, Tara be, Flynn? Because, oh, they, because you have your voice. That's the thing. You have well, your I voice have the and you're living your life. I'm, I'm very lucky that I have and that, and, and that I've, you know, it, it is a real privilege to do comedy and uh, to, 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 to work in the arts. That's a, that's a massive privilege. It's a massive privilege to have an audience. But I also think now that people are listening, what are you saying? That's my mantra to myself. Okay, you've got people to listen. Great. But now what are you saying? And I think if you're saying nothing except uh, oh, oh, them over there who have different experience than me, they're fools. It's like, oh, yawn, yawn. So, but a lot of people then will go, well, that's just not funny. But funny isn't mean. To me, there's become an equating of funniness with meanness. And I, it doesn't have to be that way. It didn't used to be that way. Silliness is brilliant. Let's bring back the silly. Okay. Second that. I'd love to actually open it up to some questions. Now, about, we have about if anyone minutes. has any, yeah, we've got a, a few extra minutes. So if anyone out there in the audience has a question for us, or I guess there's we've a microphone mic right here. here at the front. So just put your hand up and I call you over and you can Let's ask see. away. Quite so yeah, don't, don't be shy. Don't be shy. Yeah. But in the meantime, I, I might go back to you, um, Terry. Do, do you have any... Uh, Secrets or lesser-known sides of the of the city stories that you'd like to share with us? Because I know you, over your um, your work, you've been collecting yeah. folklore and tales from the the North Inner City, and actually collecting those audio recordings. Um, you know, as a I suppose for the future, yeah. is there anything that's kind of stuck with you? Yeah, well, we collected, as I said, hundreds of people's memories of the city, but one of them sticks out in my mind was when I was interviewing this um, man, Billy. And uh, he was talking about uh, one of the, the prostitutes in Monto. She was known as Shilling Ago. And uh, so he says, uh, he says uh, she carried a lot of money on her and uh, she made a mistake and she went down. To, uh, it's a little lane. It's still there today. It's called Mabbott Lane there just off Railway Street. And you can come in off Talbot Street onto her as well. But he said she, she, he, uh, she made a mistake going down there. Two guys went down after her and beat her up. And took the money and she, we, were, we were only kids he said and I said did you go over and help her he said no we ran over and picked up the money as well and ran and, and then he said even though she was old uh, she was back at, back at her again and I said how old was she she in her very late 70s right and, uh, and I said what he said yeah late 70s he said our favourite punters were that, that, that taxi what we called taxi men in those days were the cabbies going into it and he said See, even the horses knew where to go to her he said so. So it's, it, it's like it's a history thing. That lane in, in off, uh, off Railway Street, Mabbott Lane, there, it's absolutely steeped in the history of, of the Red Light District. Even so much so, they had a big statue of a religious statue overlooking that lane for years and years after. And uh, when they were taking it down, there was a, a big, uh, not an apparition, but something happened. They were taking it down, and uh, it was up there for so long that when they were taking it down, it shattered. And the builders reported that the sun went black in front of them. And uh, they got it down, they thrown her into a skip. And of course, the wind came through the lane and sent something flying out of the skip at them. They thrown the statue down, and they all ran into the, into the building. So when I was told the story, and I went down and I said, because uh, uh, we the statue is part of the history of the area, and we wanted to, to kind of preserve it. And 
the, 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 the developer then came out and said, uh, he said, did you hear what happened? And I said, yeah. And I said, how many drinks did they all have? <laughs> he said, no. He said, no. He said, no, that's exactly the way it happened, he says. So, uh, so he said, I'll tell you what I'll do. He said, I'll pay you any amount of money to get that statue repaired. So I said, okay. So I said, right, I know a guy, Jerry. Uh, uh, he was he's a Presbyterian and myself uh, as a Catholic. And uh, so... So we went down, we got, got the pieces of the statue, and then I said, I'll have to get somebody else to move it. So I got this guy called, a fellow called Tom Redmond, a good friend of mine since past, and he turns out he's an atheist, right? So he's a Catholic, a Protestant, an atheist, on the ground in Mabbit Lane, looking for the little pieces of the statue so he could put it back together. <laughs> and the funny thing about it was, when the statue was taken back down into the, it was a first station there on Buckingham Street, Jerry was repaired in the statue, and he rang me up and he says, Terry, you better come down, there's something wrong with the statue. And I said, what's wrong with it, Jerry? He said, you better come down and see for yourself. So I went down and said, what's wrong with the statue? There's a scent coming up from the statue. So I, I start, couldn't, so I can't smell that. And I said, you're smoking that harsh again? And he said, <laughs> he said, no, 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 he said, there is. So I happened to have a camera with me, and I took the photograph of the statue lying down. And believe it or not, when we got the photographs developed, and we, got, we didn't develop them ourselves, there's no trick photography or anything like that. We got them developed in Hall's camera shop on, on Talbot Street. When we looked at the photographs of the statue lying down, there was a second face looking straight back out. And, no. and, it was, and the photograph, the, the whole story just went wide, broke, broke. Even the History Channel wanted to contact us to do the, do the documentary on it. Right? But those guys that were there, it was during the, 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 the Celtic Times, the, the went bust, the country went bust, more or less, and these guys moved out of Ireland and somewhere across the world doing that. But they're still wanting to do that story of the statue. And the story of that particular statue was to lead to a finding, a foil, a finding of another statue that was missing for 100 years. So the area is absolutely steep. Look, the stories I could go on and on about. The, the History Channel is going to have to beat us to it, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. but Anyone thought of a question in the meantime? Yeah, don't Any be shy up? and do, come, do put up your hand. Um, but I know you've been looking for a permanent premises for a tenant museum. What do you think the importance is to preserve, I suppose, the, the history of the people in this way? Yeah, well, I, it's, it's most important because the stories we get, it's just not tenemented. We covered everything from, from, the, from the foundation of the state uh, to the, back to the, to the prostitution, the monto, and, the, and even the industrial schools. But the thing that strikes me more so is, is, is the role women played. Uh, in, 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 the, in the, the rebirth of Ireland in many ways. Because these were women that were trapped in these massive tenement houses. And some families, we, some women that we interviewed, that their mothers had 22 children in those rooms, right? And, uh, and they were there, and they were trapped in them. They couldn't go out anywhere. They, like, the men could go to a pub and have a drink and the whole, but those women couldn't get out of those houses. They were trapped there. Mm -hmm. And the only way that they could then is when the children got a bit older, they get them to mind the kids. But they said, they'd always tell you that, and then it was a danger coming out from the top down, because people were burning the tenements to keep the rooms warm at night. So they're literally burning the parts of George and Dublin to keep, the, keep themselves warm at night. So th this is like maybe the, the skirting boards and the furniture and stuff like that? Yeah, the, 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 the first thing to go would be in skirting boards, then the, the window sashes and the big shutters that went over them, they'd go, and anything like that. So people told me that the, the, in the morning time, uh, the, the morning time they'd have a handrail, and then uh, going in, in the morning, going up in the, in the evening time, there would be a handrail, but the next morning it's gone. 
because somebody up during the night and took the, broke her up and took her into Borna. It's quite incredible when you like think of those scenes of the people burning that stuff and what those houses were built for, which were these, you know, aristocrats. Yeah. yeah. As, as like palaces, you know? Yeah. Here, I, yeah. I grew up in my granny's house in Kenilworth Square, Rathgar. So it's like aspiring, Victor aspiring middle-class Victorian neighborhood. But at the time, it was still a lot of that, a lot of that area was in flats. Um, <clears throat> And we had this enormous house, 13-room Victorian house, and I'm living there with my boyfriend and my two sisters. And it's the 80s, we're students, but there's no central heating. I mean, there's a glorious house with a 150-foot garden, a walled kitchen garden with plum trees and everything at the back, and then stables. There was still the bells to the servants' quarters downstairs. Uh, we called it our chic slum. I had 150 people in there for my 25th birthday party, which is amazing. We cracked all the plaster on the ceiling underneath. We had to uh, prop it up because there were so many people dancing in this dining room and drawing room. But we were so poor as students. There was no central heating. This is the early 80s. We used to huddle around this cast iron oven during the winter. The three of us having the chats and cup of tea and huddle around. And that was, unless you lit a fire, that was our heating most yeah. evenings, actually. I mean, we called it our, our chic slum, you know. We thought it was great. But now we look back and go, it was a fucking hovel. Yeah. <laughs> okay, it, now listen, we, we have about three minutes left. It's your last chance. Go last on once, go on twice. Yeah. I'm taking a good look out there if I can see any. Oh, we Come have on, one. Hannah, Come on, stand up to the mic. Go on. Good woman yourself. Hello. Thank you for your, all your stories. Um, I just wanted to ask if there's anything you kind of miss. You all seem to have really nice, fond memories of kind of old school Dublin. Is there anything you think has been lost and you now miss? So any, if anyone uh, missed that, it was, is there any, any, anything that you guys miss? Um, anything that was lost from those days? Yeah, well, for me, uh, I missed uh, friends I grew up with. But, uh, and... Like these, these, these were special guys uh, to grow up with because when we came out of those places, we ended up going on a mission to hunt down the people that hurted us as children. But I missed those, they're all gone. There's only two of us alive from that group that went after the people that hurted, hurted us as children. And so I, I missed that kind of thing that was there. And, uh, community. Like, yeah, community thing. They, and the, and the, the tenements where we lived are all gone and it's, it's, a whole change. it's a whole change in city. It's gentrification in the round and north in the city now. I'm trying to negotiate the AIDS pandemic, so my, the, I've lost over 40, a lover and 40, over 40 friends to AIDS, and the first friend I lost was the same age as me, 27, and AIDS, when it arrived here, came shrouded in so much taboo and transgressiveness, because the, all of the, the, the first people to actually suffer from it were either sex workers, injecting drug users, Inner city, inner city injecting drug users are gay or bi men. So it was, it was completely shrouded in criminality and taboo. And not unlike many other countries, the government just didn't want to know about it. You know, it's, the first notified cases were in 1982. The government took five years to have a conversation in the Doyle about it. And in the meantime, the church is actually refusing to condone the use of condoms. I mean, it's crazy to think that contraceptives were illegal in this country. The church was refusing to use, uh, condone the use of condoms as our brothers were dying awful deaths. I mean, it's just quite extraordinary. <clears throat> and it's a period where I think now, at 30 years remove, and 
I, I, I mean, I've had, I, I co-scripted a, a show about this last year that Tara was at. But it seems now we're at a remove that's allowing what I call the walking wounded, gay and hetero people who survived the crisis, who looked after their children, looked after their parents, looked after their uncle or whoever. Um, it seems that we're now at a remove where we're beginning to make sense of the, of, the, of, of the period and we're beginning to sort of modulate our grief and anger at the shocking stuff that happened. And what kills me is that it's a period that is, has been airbrushed from our history. You don't read about it in the history books at all. There's been a handful of cultural responses to it by way of a memoir or a documentary or a film or something like Calm Turbines, the Blackwater, the Blackwater Lightship. There's been a paucity of cultural responses to it for all the reasons that I outlined. And I just think we really have to go back and revisit that period because there are people who are still hurting, there are people still angry because we were, effectively we weren't allowed grieve during that period. You know, it's quite, and of course, you know what it's like, grief, if it's not modulated, it's corrosive, it's shocking, it's, it's, it's damaging. So I do think we actually need to revisit that period. And also, rather than sort of beat us over the heads about how bloody awful it was, I think there's some phenomenal stories about survival, mm. about getting through it, about, about mining the... The, the coping mechanisms and survival strategies Resilience. of the society, and then applying them to the particular set of problems we, we find ourselves living with today. Yeah, okay. And Tara, very quickly, do you have... Uh, very quickly, um, and it won't be anywhere near as significant, as beautiful as, as those two contributions, but cinemas, local, small local cinemas, I mean, the, the, the closest we still have really are the Lighthouse and the IFI, but it used to be, you know, the tiny little, the, the lighthouse, the original lighthouse on Abbey Street and the screen, I loved that. And, and they used to, you know, so, and there were tiny little screens. Mm. Um, the, even the Savoy, the way, like everyone would go to the Savoy on a Friday. There'd be queues round the block every Friday. Um, there was a big cinema culture in this town. And, and then every, every locality would have its own cinema as well in greater or lesser states of repair. I mean, I miss the sticky floors. Mm. Like <laughs> there aren't any sticky floored cinemas anymore. I loved them. I used to go to the cinema like crazy. I didn't have a telly in the bed set with the, the toe cooker. Um, and I used to go into town on my bike and I used to go to whatever movies were out and I would see all of them. And, uh, and I miss those cinemas. Fantastic. Amazing. Well, listen, I'm sure you'll all agree that it was absolutely fascinating hearing about those secret sides to the city and join us in giving a huge round of applause to our wonderful guests. Now... As a token of our appreciation, we have a little gift for each of them. These beautiful Irish passport bags, exclusive. Thank you so much for coming tonight. Uh, we're going to hand over now to our brilliant friends over at the Mother Folklore Podcast, and we might be back at the end of that for a few questions. But thank you so much for coming and Sloan for now. Sloan. Thanks for listening to our live show. You can head over to our friends at the Mother Folklore podcast to hear the second part of the evening. Their hilarious chat about what tales from Irish mythology would make for the best TV series. Myself and Tim joined them for a Q&A session at the end of their show. Huge thanks to the Dublin Podcast Festival for putting on the event, to the terrific production team at the Button Factory, to Alan and Brian of Headstuff, and especially to Derek, Emer, Padder and Garadine of Mother Folklore. Sloan for now.